Welcome to the FarmD Money Podcast, where certified financial planner Derek Delaney brings financial education and observation to help pharmacists navigate their most important financial questions. Welcome in FarmD Nation to episode number 25 of the FarmD Money Podcast. I am your host, Derek Delaney. Thank you all for joining me today. We are now entering into the heart of college planning season for a lot of families who have college-bound kids, either next year or in the coming years. I know a lot of parents get pretty nervous and get pretty anxious when it comes to trying to figure out how they're going to pay for college, specifically if they're dealing with children who are very gifted in academics and college would be a tremendous opportunity for them to better themselves specifically at institutions that they believe could offer the type of education that would get them to a place in their future careers that they want to go. But usually when you think about these specific institutions that give greater, I don't want to say education, but seem like a better institution compared to others because of the high academic standards or just the the history of the institution usually comes with a higher price tag. And this can cause a lot of problems because a lot of middle-class families in America simply cannot afford to send their children to these higher-priced universities throughout the country. So in this podcast episode, I want to help ease that burden just a little bit by teaching a little bit of the basics when it comes to proper college planning in hopes that it will provide any listeners out there with a little more direction or provide them with a little more confidence when it comes time for them to dive into everything that college planning has to offer. So to start out, one of the most common terms that you're going to run into when you start looking at deciding where you want to send your child or when you give the child the option of determining which schools they might want to attend in college. And that term is cost of attendance. Basically, it is the sticker price that comes along with the shopping around when you look at different universities throughout our country. So the cost of attendance is not only just the cost of going to the school, but it also includes or does its best to include other things like the cost of room and board or other living expenses for students who do not contract with the school for room and board. If you live really close to the university and you want to drive back and forth every day, that could be an option. Uh, Cost of attendance also usually includes the cost of books, supplies, um, transportation, loan fees, and other miscellaneous expenses that often come up that aren't really accounted for when you think about the price of college. There is also an allowance for child care, dependent care, so that is included in the cost of attendance. So they really try to include everything a normal average student would end up having to pay for when they create that cost of attendance dollar amount that they show off to prospective students and their families and their parents that are looking at their university as an option for their future education needs. So the big one, again, is cost of attendance. That's a big number you see right away. But when you see that number, don't let it scare you. Don't look at the number and go, there's no way we can afford this and write it off your list of potential colleges you may want to look at even deeper. Because as you'll see later in this podcast, cost of attendance is not the hard dollars out-of-pocket cost usually that will be required of a family. 
to allow their child to attend that university. So cost of attendance is just the starting number. The next piece of information you're going to want to do your best to uncover when you dig into your college planning is to figure out what your expected family contribution is. And I will say expected family contribution is a name that's going away. It will soon be replaced with student aid index. But for this podcast episode, just because I'm used to saying it, we're going to continue calling it expected family contribution. And basically that is what universities expect a family to be able to afford when it comes time to determining what they have to pay in order to allow their kid or children to attend that university. And really it's it's information that's pulled from the FAFSA form and that information is put through a formula and it spits out a number and that number in the eyes of the universities that use expected family contribution is what they believe you can afford to pay every single year to send your child to school. They believe you have the financial resources based on this number to be able to pay that amount every single year and that you shouldn't receive any more aid until that amount is outlaid from your own personal financial resources. So how do they come up with the expected family contribution number? What are some financial pieces that a family could have that could positively or negatively impact that expected family contribution number? And remember, you want that expected family contribution number to be as low as possible because the lower that number is, the less schools will require of you to have to outlay from your financial resources to pay for that college education. And there are, among others, but there are four major areas they look at to determine what the expected family contribution is. And those four are your parental assets. So what do you own as the parents? Parental income. How much money do you make as a either married couple or um, single person? Then they look at student assets. What assets do the kids have under their name that they could potentially use to help pay for school? And then finally, student income. Are they working? Are they bringing in side hustle income based off of a a side job? Universities want to know that so they can fully expect that income or those assets under the student's name to be able to be contributed toward that total cost of attendance. So parental assets, some of the accessible assets that are considered under the parental asset umbrella are things like cash in the bank, um, 529s. I know 529s are big college saving plans, and those are actually counted as parental assets when the expected family contribution calculation is done. Things like mutual funds, um, bonds, stocks, other investments like that are included. Also included are equity in rental and vacation properties. So if you have multiple homes and you have good equity in those homes or rental properties, I shouldn't say homes, I should say vacation homes or rental properties, those get included as far as as assets that will be considered when they're tallying up what the total parental assets are before it goes into that big formula to spit out the expected family contribution. Non-accessible assets, so the assets that aren't going to be used or counted against as of now. And again, we're in August of 2021. So as of now, what will not be counted and this could all change very soon. Um, But the non-accessible assets would be things like your IRAs, traditional or Roth. They don't get counted. Retirement plans. So 401ks, 403bs, stuff like that, that does not get counted or you do not get penalized from 
that standpoint when the calculation of the expected family contribution is done. Things like pensions and annuities are non-assessable assets, so those don't get counted. A big one that a lot of people kind of know but not really is the cash value inside any life insurance policies are not included. And I know there's been a lot of people, life insurance salesmen in general, who go, you know what, a great way to reduce your expected family contribution is to drop a tremendous amount of money in a life insurance contract, hide that money in that cash value, and when college is done with for your kids, take it back out and put it back where it was before, and that becomes kind of an expensive option. But I know that's been talked about a lot. So cash value in life insurance as of now does not count as an accessible asset. And then finally, equity in your home, in your primary residence. So if you dump a bunch of money and pay off your mortgage really, really quick, that does not get held against you when it comes time to calculate the expected family contribution formula. Currently, FAFSA is prorated if families have multiple kids in college, but that is about to change starting in the year 2023 or for the class of 2023. So quickly, how it works right now is let's just say you have three kids in college and your expected family contribution is $60,000. Three kids in college, you take that $60,000 and you prorate it based on how many kids you have in college. So you go 60,000 divided by three is 20,000 each. Each of those three kids in college will have an expected family contribution of 20,000. So the combination of all three only adds up to the total expected family contribution of that family, which is nice because if you want to go to a school that's got a cost of attendance of 50000 that one child that has the 20000 expected family contribution will end up with $30,000 of need, which is great because lower, lowering your expected family contribution increases the amount of need, which gives you the opportunity to go out and get other sources of financing or funding in order to fill that gap so you can afford to go to school. But new rules that will be rolling out here in 2023 will be eliminating that prorated expected family contribution benefit. Meaning, going back to our other example, if you have three kids in college and your expected family contribution is 60000 it's going to be 60000 for each of those three kids. Which means when those three kids are in school together, your expected family contribution could be 180000 60 times 3. Worse yet, if they want to go to a school and the cost of attendance is 50000 and each child's expected family contribution is 60000 they will qualify for absolutely zero financial aid. So that's something to keep an eye open for and do your best to anticipate because that could potentially hurt a lot of middle class families and it could make paying for college um, for multiple kids at a time very, very difficult. And just to throw this out there, when it comes to FAFSA, we talked about that. There are other options too, like the CSS profile and the consensus calculation. And basically that means that different colleges use different assets and income standards to calculate the expected family contribution. So be aware of that as you're shopping around. And finally, the last term I want to talk about quickly is just financial need. So you have your cost of attendance, the sticker price, you have expected family contribution, what you're expected to pay or be able to afford as a family. You subtract cost of attendance by the EFC, and what that what spits out after that is the financial aid need. So when it comes time to determine how much financial aid you may be awarded, it basically comes down to two different factors. The first one is, will you qualify for any merit-based aid? And merit-based, merit-based aid is as it sounds. It's basically students being awarded aid based off of their 
merits in things like athletics or academics. It's very, very competitive, and this is where testing scores like ACTs and SATs become very, very important because they are an easily applied standard throughout all people looking to get admitted into the university as a measuring stick, so to speak. And the other way you can meet that financial aid need is by needs-based aid. And that all comes down to what your family's financial picture looks like at that time in the prospective students who need the financial aid the most because their their or their family's financial situation is worse will be awarded that need over other people just because they need it the most. So you have merit-based aid and need-based aid. I think it's interesting to note that merit-based aid really applies to a lot of state schools, you know, Alabama and University of Texas, stuff like that. And needs-based aid applies to a lot of Ivy League schools like Harvard and other prestigious prestigious schools like Northwestern and Notre Dame. So that's where it can get tricky. If you're a middle-class family and you have an exceptional child that excels in academics and they get accepted into an Ivy League school like Harvard or Yale or someplace like that, there's not going to be a lot of aid available to them after that expected family contribution calculation is done. So it's important to be aware of that. And then finally, I think it's also really important for a lot of families who are starting out the college planning process is to really understand what life after graduation is going to look like and use that in your college planning mentality as well. The big thing with that is student loans. Is it really worth it to attend a quote unquote more prestigious school and rack up more student loan debt than it is to attend quote unquote a less prestigious school and maybe have a lot more financial resources left over by the time you graduate. A lot of parents now are figuring out that it is not more beneficial because the education at these more quote unquote prestigious schools are not as great. And the value you receive from those from that education is not head and shoulders better based on the extreme amount of cost it takes to attend one of those more prestigious universities than an alternative. So Factor that into what is life after graduation like. And then another important thing you're going to want to consider when it comes time to college planning is really understand the value of your degree in your major. And if you have a high school student who is interested in going to college, but he or she does not know what they want to do when they get to school, they don't know what their major is going to be. Hold them out for a little bit. Let them work for a year. Take a gap year and use that money saved to put toward the funding gap that may be there when you start doing your college planning and let them get a little real world experience. I know a lot of parents who they said they wish they would have pushed their children to do something like that because they basically floated around in college for the first two or three years, not really understanding what they wanted to do and what they wanted to get out of it. And the only thing they came away with was a bunch of student loan debt. So just keep that in mind. If you're looking for more information about the podcast, myself or Farm DFP, feel free to feel free to visit the firm's website at farmdfp.com. Also, feel free to check out and subscribe to the YouTube channel, FarmD Financial Planning, for more great insight. Email podcast at farmdfp.com with questions, topics, or ideas you'd like to hear more about. Finally, until next time, FarmD Nation, be well. The FarmD Money Podcast is not intended to be tax, legal, or investment advice. All opinions expressed on the show are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for tax, legal, or investment advice.